Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gelev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today's topic was inspired by a book that recently came out by a longtime uh, science, writer, science writer at the New York Times named Nicholas Wade. His book is called A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and Human History. Uh-oh. Um, and the thesis of the book is essentially that race is not a social construct, that, in fact, Racial, uh, the racial distinctions that we can see uh, map to real and, and meaningful genetic clusters in the human species, and that race on a genetic level is the root cause of all sorts of features of modern society. Uh, Wade speculates about uh, the fact that Ashkenazi Jews win a dis- disproportionate number of Nobel Prizes uh, to uh, the poverty in Haiti, all sorts of things. He traces back to uh, genetic uh, basis in race. Um, not, so not, it's a strong claim, to say the don't least, don't forget one that, that we're going to interrogate. In that's right. Episode. Don't forget. He also mentions, uh, uh, suggests that the Industrial Revolution in England happened because the aristocracy, you know, the, 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 actually not the aristocracy, but the rich people there had good genes, which literally trickled down to the poor classes uh, when they started interbreeding. Uh, trickle and, down and, genetics. I that's right. It. Trickle down genetics. I never heard of that one before. It's like, it's, yep. it's interesting. Well, so, yeah, so basically all sorts of like social cultural, economic outcomes, political outcomes, he traces back to uh, genetically determined race. Right. So it sounds like every 20 years or so, um, uh, something like this comes up. Like it was 1994 where the, the Murray-Hernstein, uh, the belt curve came out, and that was a big, big right. brouhaha, and then it was... You know, the science was criticized and, the, the uh, of course, there was a political, div- a predictable political divide uh, between defenders and, and detractors and so on and so forth. And now we're doing it again. Um, I, I, I really don't actually want to – I mean, we, we can talk a little bit about the book, but I, I really wanted to talk more broadly, you know, not turn the, the, the episode, uh, the show, into a, a review uh, of Wade's book in particular, but but I think it's more generally interesting to to talk about well, what is what do we know about uh, human genetic diversity, especially when it comes to cognitive behavioral traits, and uh, you know, does it still make sense scientifically to talk about uh, human races? Because that that's okay. really the question, well, right? Yeah. Well, I think that uh, yeah, I also uh, don't think we need to have the whole episode be a critique of uh, Wade's book, but it is. I mean, this is the context in which people. Uh, start paying attention to uh, research on race and genetics, and this yeah. is the context in which it tends to get discussed. Yeah. Um, but in fact, my uh, my first question for you, since you've certainly studied and written about this, is what does it even mean for race to be a social construct or not to be a social construct, as Wade was arguing? What does that mean? Well, so that's a good question. Um, and And that's where the trouble immediately starts, right? Because race is supposed to be a biological concept. 
And, uh, of course, throughout the last several decades, I think, uh, people have argued that it's not a, 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 a real um, biological construct. That is, it's, there's no, there are no such things as human races. And that, in fact, the, human, the concept of human race is a social construct, meaning that you know, we, we label certain people that appear in a certain way as a race, and, and then we attribute to that label, we attach to that label all sorts of other attributes, uh, Im- real or imaginary. And, that, uh, and the idea of a social construction of races is that, in fact, what we're doing is we're simply labeling certain socioeconomic conditions of certain groups of people and then uh, imagining that they are actually biologically based, right? So uh, you can, uh, for instance, demonstrate that um, in the United States, most, throughout most of the history of the United States and still today, uh, certain racial minorities, you know, particularly blacks, of course, tend to have to live uh, in impoverished um, uh, neighborhoods in cities that have a mm-hmm. lower income than usual and so on. It's a lower level of education often than usual, you know, than average. And so then you can say, well, that's an observation. That's that, right. that you're simply well, saying that it, this, this certain number of people that, that fall into certain broad categories have are, have these characteristics. When you start to interpret those, however, causally and particularly biologically, and say, well, the reason that's the case is because you know their genes are not good enough in terms of you know the uh, cognitive traits. Then then you you're moving from a social construction or even a social description simply of race to a biological one. Oh, well, setting aside the causal stories people sometimes tell um, about genes and, and you know, socioeconomic outcomes, just just talking about whether race is even a meaningful category, like different races are meaningful categories, it, it can't all be like, well, maybe I don't know what socially constructed means, but I, I, can, I do know that, you know, if I send in my DNA to 23andMe, um, mm-hmm. they could predict is that... Is that a friend of yours? They could predict that, you know, I... Uh, as as someone with Ashkenazi Jewish genes, I probably you know don't have really dark skin, for example. Right. Right. That's right. Yes, they can. Uh, but that is simply a result of the fact that there is, and nobody doubts this, there is genetic variation among human populations. I mean, there's there's no question about that. Nobody, n- n- not no side, I think, of this debate is actually denying that. And some of that genetic variation is, of course, linked to what biologists call phenotypic traits, such as skin color. Uh, you know, so a phenotypic trait is right. general, generally anything, any external characteristic. It could be a behavior, it could be a, uh, a morphological characteristic like skin color or shape of the nose or whatever, right? Or eye color, that sort of stuff. So there's no denying the fact that, A, there is genetic variation in human populations. And this, some of this variation is geographic, meaning that if you pluck a you know, group of people at random from China and from the middle of Africa, you will see that there, there are going to be genetic differences among those two groups. Um, also, nobody d- doubts that some human genetic variants are associated with visible traits, particularly mm-hmm. skin color, but also eye color and a bunch of other things, right? So that's not mm-hmm. the issue. The issue is, are those groups that we identify as races on the base of color, mostly, mostly skin color, uh, and a few other characteristics, but it's really largely skin color, uh, are those groups, first of all, homogeneous enough to represent a, a biological entity of, of, you know, of some importance? And I'll, I'll, we should get in a minute to what biologists actually outside of, of uh, human biology actually mean by race, because the, the term race is actually used in biology in a very specific uh, sense. So, so that's, that's relevant to discussion. But mm-hmm. the, the question is, you know, does that 
do those markers, you know, uh, like skin color, which we do know are genetically based, uh, do they actually pick anything else? That is, do, do they actually allow us to make predictions about cognitive traits, behavioral traits? Are they homogeneous enough within a, gen a particular population right. and so on and so forth? Those are the actual empirical questions, right? Which Wade is claiming the answer is yes, they do. Wade is claiming the answer is definitely yes. In fact, at right. a very fine-grained level, as I said, he, he actually mentions you know uh, not only that the Ashkenazi Jews in particular uh, are you know particularly intelligent, but that the British uh, during the 19th century were particularly entrepreneurial and and so on and so forth. So right. um, I think he even argues that Ashkenazi Jews evolved genetic predisposition to capitalism. <laughs> And yes, that's why, that's right. you know, they were so historically successful in, in like the banking professions. Right. That's right. A genetic so, explanation for everything. Now, so the, so the problem with those kind of claims is that, first of all, uh, there is next to no evidence uh, for that kind of specific claim. I mean, the, while everybody agrees that there is genetic variation among human populations and that some of that variation is, in fact, reflected in visible characteristics – uh, there is really no – I mean when somebody talks about the capitalist genes or uh, you know, the, 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 the genes for succeeding in, in doing this or that or the other, we know nothing about that. Um, it's like every human behavior, it's certainly the, uh, possible uh, that there is some kind of genetic influence on that behavior, sort of loosely speaking. But to talk about genes that specifically are, you know, favor a particular type of behavior such as uh, thriving under a, cap a capitalist society, uh, there is really no evidence for that. So, so that's all speculation. Mm -hmm. In fact, Wade actually does admit that in his book, which is a little weird because uh, in the same book, in fact, often in the same chapter, he also uh, accuses a lot of scientists of being sort of politically correct liberals who refuse to look at the evidence and admit that there is that there are uh, you know human races defined in the way he does. And it's like, no, wait a minute. If you just admitted that there is no essentially that this is speculation, there is no hard empirical evidence about uh, concerning many of your claims. How can you then turn around and accuse the scientists who are supposed to be taking into account mostly the hard empirical evidence right. of sort of you know shying away from it? But I would like to go back before we go any further into this to the discussion of sort of races outside of humans because I think that that's going to be helpful in sort of clarifying why this whole issue is so muddled when, when it comes to human beings in particular. So the word race is used in biology, in evolutionary biology and in population biology. It's used for both plants and plant and animal species. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a fuzzy concept. That is, uh, the concept of race is not quite as clear as the concept of um, species itself, for instance, and one can argue actually that even the concept of species is not that clear in biology. But let's mm -hmm. that set that aside because I don't think anybody uh, is arguing that you and the and, and and the Chinese, for instance, belong to different species. So let's mm -hmm. talk about. Let's assume that we all we all know what it means to be a, a human being, uh, you know, a member of the Homo sapiens species, and now we're talking about races. So biologists use the concept of race to typically to indicate a subspecies. A subspecies is a geographically isolated population that is deeply divided, deeply separated phylogenetically from other such populations. That is, there's been a long period of no interchange or very, very reduced interchange of genes, so much so that that population is an incipient species. It is about to, if things keep going in that direction, it's about to become a separate species. That's what it means to be a race in animal and plant biology. You are okay. a, a, a um, um, 
deep phylogenetic group uh, that is about to speciate. Now, in that sense, categorically, human races do not exist. There is no deep phylogeny right. to human beings but, for the simple reason yeah. that human beings all come about, you know, the modern human populations, they all came through a genetic bottleneck of a very small population about 50,000 years ago in, in Africa. So all, all of us are descended from a very small number of people that lived 50,000 50, years ago in Africa. That means that there is no uh, deep phylogeny. There is no such a thing as, you know... Uh, Uh, blacks or Caucasians or Asians becoming about to become a separate species. So in that sure. sense, there is no, there are no human races. Right. But there, there has been some uh, diversification since then, like genetic diversification, right? Like in the sense that, uh, that Europeans sure. uh, evolved, you know, a tolerance of cow's milk, sure. uh, much more so than, than uh, the descendants of the original African humans that spread to other parts of the world. Correct. Um, and, and that people in Africa are much more likely to have this mutation that makes them uh, resistant to malaria, for example, whereas people in the rest of the world don't have that correct. particular genetic feature. That's correct. So there's been some evolution. Absolutely. The, the, oh, no, evolution the, happens the all the time. Yeah, evolution happens all the time and differentiation, geographic differentiation happens all the time with a couple of caveats, however, and these, these are fairly huge caveats. First of all, um, there is very little evidence of uh, what are called population-specific alleles. Alleles are forms of a gene, right? So if you have, you can have an allele for, to simplify things a little bit, for blue eyes as opposed to brown eyes or things like that, right? So it's the same gene, but it comes in two or more different forms. Those forms are called alleles. Human populations typically don't have what population geneticists call private alleles. That is an allele that exists only in that population and in no other population. Human populations instead differ only in the frequency of their alleles. So even when you're talking about you know, uh, resistance, your tolerance to, to processing milk, to digesting milk, or you know, any other trait that you can think of, of the malaria resistance and all that, Those are not genes that are specific to those populations and those populations only. Those are simply genes that are at a higher frequency in those populations, right? right? So it's a quantitative difference. It's not, there's nothing qualitative about it. So that's the one important caveat. The second important caveat is that if you pick a population of, let's say, uh, Northern Africans or Western Africans, um, you know, even a fairly small population and localized geographic population of, of individuals, As it turns out, that population probably contains uh, over 95% of the human genetic variation. That is, the overwhelming amount of genetic variation in human beings is within populations, not across populations. Uh, which is, another, is simply another way so, to say that there are no deep phylogenetic distinctions between human populations, right? Okay, so does that mean that if you knew someone's... Uh, like the genetic signature that corresponds to whatever their uh, like phenotypic race is or whatever, I don't know, whatever we would call socially call their race, yeah. uh, that we, we would have some predictive power about like, I don't know, their height, for example, and uh, like whether they can you know, digest milk, but it wouldn't be 100%. No, it would be far from 100%. Um, right. And so, but it, does, that, it, does that actually rebut the idea that that race is not just a social construct or is that consistent with the idea that race is a social construct? I'm That's confused. consistent with the idea that race is a social construct in the sense that, in, you know, you can, you can then, I can then ask a question. Uh, how many races do we have? 
And if you if you look up the literature, it's a mess. People yeah. that you know, people that that uh, say that there are human that human races are actually biological entities, they will give you an estimate anywhere from five to hundreds. And yeah, that, that, you know, right, right that there, that's a problem, the, right? It was one like, of the more dumbfounding aspects of Wade's book yeah. that he keeps talking about race, and basically in terms of continents, in terms of like right. the five race uh, scheme based on continents. Um, but the 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 paper that he uh, mainly relies on uh, to show that race clusters uh, like cleanly in a genetic sense, uh, that that paper actually shows that there's like clustering races or breaking down races in you know five ways doesn't doesn't have any more statistical basis than breaking down races in you know seven or twelve or even twenty ways. That's right. Um, that like you can draw those clusters at sort of any level of analysis you like. And there's no, the only justification Wade has in fact for using his, you know, continent based model of race is that he wants to keep things simple, which is not like the most, yes. the most like scientific defense of his model of how race works. No, it's right. It's, it, that's exactly right. So, uh, you know, most people, I, I think, I, I would think most, most people who don't really think that too much about it will probably tell you that the number of human races is relatively small and they will go pretty much with Wade's classification of five. Uh, you know, but the problem is that first of all, those five actually in actually pick, as you just pointed out, uh, continental variation, and it's definitely not surprising that there are uh, some there's some genetic differences between populations that live in different continents. I mean, would you really expect something different? The problem is, are those differences, you know, somehow indicative of a level of a you know a biologically concrete entity? And the answer is no, precisely because if you actually do statistical analysis on human genetic variation, you know you can do something called cluster analysis, uh, which collects you know you can collect a lot of data on genetic variation in human populations, and you can say, well, how many natural clusters come out of this of this variation? So the, the analysis can tell you if there is a, um, a a point where you can pinpoint number of clusters and no more, right? And you don't you can't go any further because then they become statistically not significant. And the problem is that if you do cluster analysis or similar kinds of multivariate statistical analysis on human genetic data, you don't find any such point. What, what you find is more and more differentiation at a more and more local level. So you'll see that the five continents are different, but also, you know, you go within a continent, certainly the northern Europeans are different from the southern Europeans, and then the northern Italians are different from the southern Italians, and in fact, the Sardinians are different from uh, the Sicilians, and so on and so forth. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's no point at which you can say, aha, now I reached some kind of, you know, stable uh, subdivision. You, you, you keep going, and then you presumably, I'm pretty sure if you, you find an analysis, you do an analysis of that type, uh, you will find differences between you know different uh, areas of the same city. Uh, on average, right. I'm pretty sure that people living in the Bronx have a, gen- a different genetic makeup from people living in you know uh, Wall Street. Well, yeah, so in fact, I'm pretty sure that, that that's the case. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. But how does that fact uh, bear on hypotheses like Wade's that race is a major causal factor in explaining all sorts of outcomes in the world? Like, couldn't like in theory at least, couldn't it still be possible that? Uh, that race like plays a major role in, I don't know, inequality, for example, even if you have to like go down to a very fine grained level to, you know, define what race someone is. Well, the, so when you say, uh, first of all, the answer to the question of, of could, uh, 
race play a concept uh, a play uh, um, sorry, uh, a, a role Major in the, yeah a role a causal role in inequality. The answer I think you would get from a lot of people is yes, but for social reasons, not for genetic ones. Oh yeah, no, I just right? I was trying to refer to his genetic <laughs> yeah, argument. Right, you're referring to the genetic one. Now the problem is, well, if, if we cannot come up with a coherent definition of race, that is, uh, as we said, we already excluded the biological definition of race, that doesn't apply to human beings. So right there, you would think that people would be in trouble because, you know, you know defenders of sort of a biological concept of race because, as it turns out, you cannot apply the standard concept of race in biology to human populations. So right there, there's, uh, there's a problem. But if further I show you that, that the uh, geographic variation in human population is continuous, there's no, there's no boundary, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not even a statistical boundary. Then, then, in what sense can something that literally does not have, not exist because it doesn't have a concrete, any concrete uh, instantiation from a biological perspective, play a causal role? Now, if well, it doesn't sound. I don't think you need discrete categories in order for something to be a real thing. Like it could just be a continuous variable, just like someone's point in a multi-dimensional space is a continuous variable that can still have a. That could, in theory, still have a causal role on outcomes you care about. Sure, but then I'm not saying the evidence suggests that. I'm just right, saying, right. No, I don't but, think but, that the discreteness or lack thereof. But then you're saying that genetic differences between human beings play a role in um, uh, in in their uh, behavior and cognitive capacities. That that one, I have no doubt about it. I mean, there are people who are who who are have are endowed with certain genetic, you know, lottery uh, that makes them much faster at doing certain things, or much stronger, or much, you know, uh, or more intelligent than average, and so on and so forth. I don't have a problem with that, but that's that's not race. That just means that there are some individuals that are going to be genetically better endowed for certain things than others just by random uh, lottery. Uh, I don't think it, there's much doubt that that is the case. I mean, you have to be a really extreme postmodernist or you know deconstructionist to deny that. Uh, we know that there is genetic variation, and so we know that some individuals are going to be, and, and we know that that genetic variation influences all sorts of human characteristics. So some individuals are going to be better um, at certain things by by virtue of their genetic constitution. The question is, do they actually form homogeneous enough groups? that we can reasonably label them races and that the concept actually makes a, uh, does some work. Let me give you an example. As it turns out, um, whether somebody is black or not depends on where you are. Uh, so it's, it, you know, we, we may have this idea that it's easy enough to go down in the street and say, oh, yeah, that person is black, that person is Caucasian, and so on and so forth. But if you go down to Brazil, you'd be surprised at what counts as a black um, people that are to to, to the two of us uh, are clearly and obviously white, if not Caucasian. They actually count as black downstairs, down down there. So it's it that's because people are used to making different discriminations depending on whatever the population that they're exposed to, which means that even the term black doesn't actually pick any uh, entity that that um, that is is biologically homogeneous. Think about it. Uh, think about it in another way. Uh, if you look at West Africans and Eastern Africans, they're both black populations, and so are uh, um, you know Malaysians, for instance. But they're completely different. Right. They, well, I mean, in that case, like that all seems correct. But then, then the conclusion seems to be that, like, like to whatever degree that race has any causal effect on other outcomes, it's not at the level of black. It would be at a much finer level. You know, yes. so it would be at the level of like the more Sardinian blood you have, the more likely you are to be creative or something. Correct. I made that up completely out of thin air, but like it would be something 
much more fine-grained. The, the, the causal arrows would be much more fine-grained level or something. Yes. I just don't think there's actually good evidence of that. No, I'm, there's I was no... just trying to make the a priori case about yeah, know, the yeah, size yeah. of the categories. Wait a minute. That, I, I suppose, I'm supposed to be the philosopher here, so I'm supposed to do in the a priori <laughs> cases. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good point. Sure, of course, in theory it could be, but the, 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 the empirical data show that there is no, um, since it is a continuum, and there is no clustering that it's actually, uh, you know, objectively, that objectively emerges from this thing. You, you keep going the analysis and making it more and more fine-grained, and you still keep finding local differentiation between human populations. Uh, so at some point, you have to question, you know, well, why are we talking about races at all? And by the way, typically people in, in sort of current, you know, normal usage, folk usage, if you like it, people talk only about major races, they don't talk about Sardinians versus, oh, yeah. you know, the, the northern Sicilians and so on and so forth. Um, so at the very least, we can agree that at that overall level, you know, broad level of the four or five major races, that, that talk actually doesn't make any, any, any sense. There's another thing to keep in mind, and this comes straight out of, uh, you know, basic population genetic theory. Uh, and I'm going to try to to explain this without any math. Uh, but so so population genetic theory is very well developed. Okay, it's it's a very well understood part of of evolutionary theory. We've been working on it for more than a century, and and we have a lot of data about human population genetics as well as population genetics of other species. Um, so we, we we really know we really do know what we're talking about in these cases. And population genetic theory will tell you that. Uh, in order to mess around with, with genetic variation, in other words, in order to, to uh, prevent a local, geogra- a, a local geographic population from diverging, right, which is what mm-hmm. we need in order to get going the concept of race, it takes very little. Often, just one migrant from outside the population per generation is enough to bring in sufficient genetic variation to mess things around completely. So the idea is, therefore, that even when people talk about, uh, um, you know, oh, well, the, uh, let's say the uh, Australasia was, um, um, was colonized something like 20, let's say, 15 or 20,000 years ago, so hasn't there been enough time for those people to differentiate genetically? Yeah, but the problem is that over those 15 or 20,000 years, you probably have, in fact, you can document in, in several cases, you probably had a number of migrants, even a, a small number of migrants, into those populations. And those numbers of migrants kept messing things around, and it, that is, kept re- reshuffling uh, the, the sort of the genetic makeup, so that local differentiation becomes very, very superficial. There is local differentiation for a few traits, like the ones you were talking about earlier, skin color. That's because skin color really, truly is obviously adaptive, right? I mean, there is, mm-hmm. there is no question about the fact that uh, a dark skin evolves usually near the equator and a light skin evolves away from the equator. Why? Well, we have a pretty good idea of that, right? Uh, the the uh, dark skin, uh, uh, of course, filters UV light, which um, um, helps in reducing the number of you know, uh, tumor skin, t- skin cancer um, in those populations. When you go away from the equator, on the other hand, uh, high levels of UV light are no longer the problem. What becomes a problem is that you need to produce enough vitamin D, which is produced by exposure to uh, sunlight. So you want to lose your pigmentation uh, in order to increase the production of vitamin D. It's that simple. Right, right, right. right? So in all those cases, we do know that there are geographic differentiation and that they're adaptive. But the thing is, there's really no difference between 
the uh, the you know the black populations, let's say in in uh, in Malaysia or in Eastern Africa and West Africa, from that perspective, they carry the same melanin genes that have evolved for the same reason, and they have you know they've been selected for the same reason. There's really no mystery there. But those genes don't carry any information about anything else. They don't tell you anything about the intelligence of these people. They don't tell you anything about their propensity to. Uh, become capitalist or thrive in a capitalist society or, any, or nothing of the sort that is interesting in in, in the books like the ones that uh, Wade has written. Hmm. So do you think that the the uh, selection pressures that like people like Wade invoke to uh, to explain like more complex or interesting outcomes, like, I don't know, differences in creativity, for example, do you think that those selection pressures just, like, weren't strong and clear enough to even a priori be expected to produce, uh, you know, genetic divergence over time? Um, well, The way that distance from the equator was? Right. Um, so the, the, the problem is that you have to, I mean, I don't know, a priori I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell, but the thing is, would you, why would you say, um, or why would you imagine that, uh, uh, certain kinds of populations are going to be thriving with less creativity, for instance. I mean, I would think, if anything, a priori. I, I mean, like, right? yeah, in but, theory, some situations would require, like, I don't know, if some environments were more complex, then they would reward creativity more than environments that were simple or something. I don't know. I pulled creativity out of the air. I've yeah, heard. I know. But you can you can do that. Now, if you if you do that, let's, assume, let's go for, with that thought experiment for a second. Then it seems to me that among the most complex environments on Earth are actually the equatorial ones. Uh, not not the northern um, uh, parts of the of, of the planet, um, because ecolog- at the very least, ecologically, uh, you know, uh, equatorial regions are much more complex uh, in terms, you know, so as an environment than uh, than uh, than uh, northern uh, Europe, let's say. And so, if anything, you would expect, therefore, the northern Europeans to have evolved, you know, toward level of uh, of intelligence lower than the than the Africans. But as you can well, see, that that's, I mean, you could also make the opposite argument that, uh, that that bleaker uh, environments, like near uh, the poles, require more crea- or should select for more creativity right. because you know it, they're so much harder to survive in than an environment full of abundance. Right. Um, so my I guess so you the can make that argument make is not that is not that selection. It's not that there's a problem with the a priori idea that differing environments could have selected for different cognitive traits. It's just that you can tell any story that you like to explain literally any way the world could possibly be uh, in terms of the distribution of these cognitive traits. And there doesn't – I haven't found any compelling evidence to suggest that, you know, one story – uh, should be privileged over another. Correct. So, so the the difference between the two stories, you know, the the uh, creativity, let's say, the the, the uh, case and the melanin case, the skin uh, color case, is that in the case of the skin color, we have the following information: we we have very good reasons, both a priori and actually experimental, uh, to uh, uh, to think about, you know, to, to know what the selective pressure is. Okay. Um, so these are not just so stories. We we know that high level of UVs cause cancer, and that low level of U, of, of um, UVs actually cause vitamin D deficiency. These these are not made up stories. Right. Right. Um, we also know something about the genetics of this thing. I mean, we know the genes that are involved in producing melanin. We can measure the frequencies of these genes, and they, sure enough, geographically, they vary exactly in the way in which you would, you would think that they would vary. Or if you want an even simpler example, we can go back to one of your. Earlier ones, the one about malaria, uh, genes that, that confer resistance to malaria, uh, those genes are very well understood. It's actually a single gene um, 
for the shape that, that alters the shape of the hemoglobin. And, you know, you, those are understood. We know what, what it is. We can track it geographically, and we know exactly uh, um, how it varies and why it varies. So there is both a causal story and empirical evidence to, to back up that causal story. In the case of, let's say, creativity, just to pick, again, your, your hypothetical example, right? Well, first of all... I think Wade uses creativity. I think he yeah, actually yeah. Yeah, yeah, he speculates does. that East Asians have lower crea- genetically have lower creativity or something. Right. So, first yeah. of all, uh, unlike uh, skin color, creativity is much more difficult to measure objectively. You know, what, what do you mean by creativity? I mean, how are we going to measure creativity? I'm not saying well, that it's impossible. You could, let's say you came up with a particular definition. Well, but that's, but that's the problem. Ability to perform well in a particular puzzle or something well but that's the problem that we need to come up with a way to measure that to define that trait that makes evolutionary sense so you know the ability right. to do a jigsaw puzzle it's not not going to count because i doubt that there's going to be natural selection for doing that so so sure. you need first of all so the first obstacle there is that the concept itself is vague enough which uh, which and needs to be clarified and i i, I like to see it clarified by people like wade and and and, uh, and others the second thing is we know nothing about genes underlying creativity, partly because we don't have a good definition of creativity, and partly because uh, genes underlying human behavioral traits are usually many. Like, you know, we, we know that, for instance, intelligence, even intelligence simply measured as IQ, has a genetic basis, but we also know it's a quantitative genetic basis. It's not like there is a single or two genes, like in the right. case of melanin. Uh, so there's a bunch of genes. If there is a bunch of genes, that means that individual genes probably have small effects. Uh, you know, there's, so there is a statistical distribution, which is typical for quantitative traits in in, in uh, uh, both animal and plant species, including humans. So now we're talking about a situation. Oh, and we don't know about the selective pressures because, as we we just demonstrated, you can come up with you know spinning stories one way or the other. So you see that all of a sudden we went from a situation where we knew the genes, we know uh, we have empirical evidence and good reasons to. Uh, for a particular causal story to a situation where we don't know the genes, we can't even measure, agree on a measure of the, of the phenotype, and we certainly don't agree on a, on a uh, causal story. So that's right. the problem. <laughs> right. So all that we're left with basically for, for, for traits that, that aren't determined by a single gene, which we have information about, basically, all we're left with are these kind of correlations that we right. can observe in the world, but they're, you know, that, that like, uh, I don't know that people from one country like perform better on a particular puzzle than people from a different country or whatever. Um, And, and, and if all we're dealing with are these correlations, then we can't really distinguish the genetic story from, from other stories that like cultural forces or, you know, geographic influences, like the sort that Jared Diamond wrote about in Guns, Germs and Steel, Correct. you know, where you're, you're like the, the horizontal versus vertical orientation of your continent determines things about your, you know, the, the culture that evolves and the particular traits that become dominant. Um, so I don't know. My, my take is, has, ever since I started reading about this, has been we know that uh, cultural forces and to some extent geographic forces like play a major role in, in outcomes for cities, countries, continents, etc. Right. Um, so given that we know that those play a major role and we don't really have any evidence that, that genes do play a role, even though a priori in theory they could, my default has always been to go back to the social and cultural explanation. Yes. So that's, that's an excellent point. And, and so the, the problem is not um, that I at least uh, would um, uh, sort of dismiss or, or, or not, not entertain uh, the idea that there may be 
significant genetic variation in cognitive traits among human populations and so on and so forth, a priori. That's fine. A priori, that's certainly a possibility. But so far, the, the evidence that we have goes against it, meaning that we know for a fact that there is no such thing as a deep ge- geographical genetic differentiation among human populations. And the rest is entirely speculative. It's, you know, there's no evidence. So if you're making the claim, you better come up with the evidence. I'll go back to that point in a minute about the, the relationship between claim and evidence. But I wanted to, to um, uh, add something to, to your point, which is uh, people seem to forget that there's very, very good explanations already for a bunch of the kinds of things that allegedly the, the, the biological explanation um, allows us to understand. Uh, right. right. So we, we do know quite a bit about historical and cultural and, and environmental influence and so on and so forth. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all the whole story, but it certainly means that at least we have, in fact, a number of causal explanatory pathways for, cert- for differences among human populations uh, and individuals even uh, that, that are already available, that are already somewhat understood, certainly better understood than the, than the genetic claim. And so, you know, right. why discard that? Uh, one of the examples in that, so uh, if I have to uh, suggest to our listeners uh, uh, a particular review, for instance, about, of, uh, of Nicholas Wade's book, uh, if you want to read only one, just read the one by Alan Orr, uh, O-R-R, in the New York Review of Books. Alan is a colleague at the University of Rochester. He's, he's an evolutionary biologist. He's one of the most thoughtful th- people that I, that, I, that I know of. And, and every time that he writes a book review, I read it because it's, it's always insi- insightful, even when I disagree with him. Um, in, the, in this case, or, uh, you know, does a very, very good job at sort of factually undermining pretty much everything or, uh, that, that uh, Wade, you know, all the major claims that Wade uh, makes. But he comes up also with sort of, such obvious counterexamples that you think, well, like, really? Did, did people not think about that? For, insi- for instance, yeah. uh, Wade claims that there must be genetic differences between, uh, let's say, the Asians uh, and, the, um, and the Europeans because otherwise what, would, what could possibly explain the fact that uh, China has an autocratic society and uh, Europe has developed democracy, right? And, and oh. Alenor comes up with the obvious counter example. Oh, really? So uh, compare North Korea and South Korea. Those are populations that are essentially genetically the same. There's no difference between North Koreans and South Koreans, yet they have very di- completely different political systems and societies. And those political systems and societies differentiated very recently. So are you kidding me? I mean, that, that sort of counter example is so obvious that one you think, like, why didn't it didn't wait think about this sort of thing before writing yeah. the book. Actually, the um, the review, uh, if you had asked me what review of Wade's book would you recommend if people yep. could only read one, uh, I actually didn't come across Eleanor's, I think, for some reason. But the, the one that I liked the best that I would have recommended is the one in Slate by Andrew Gelman, um, yes. who's actually a former I, professor of mine at Columbia in statistics. Yep. I read that um, one too, yes. It's very good. Yeah, it's, it's like very accessible. And, and it also, like, uh, I think it's like very reasonable, but... You know, the the arguments that uh, Andy makes, that Gelman makes, are, like, some of the most persuasive ones are just these, like, logical, like, pointing out logical flaws in the way that right. uh, Wade is reasoning about things. So, you know, for example, uh, one of Wade's arguments against the cultural hypothesis, like, that, you know, cu- culture is the main causal factor determining these different outcomes against that hypothesis is that, uh, you know, if, if culture were it, then... Um, then an innovation, like some cultural innovation that works in one 
country or one region could just be copied right. by, you know, the genetically different uh, races in other regions and it would work just as well. And that doesn't happen. Ergo, it must be genetics. Right. So, for example, uh, he says, Wade says, capital and information flow fairly freely. So what is it that prevents poor countries from taking out a loan, copying every Scandinavian institution and becoming as rich and peaceful as Denmark? That's right. Um, with the implication that the answer is, you know, genetic differences in the races of these different countries. Yep. Um, but Gelman points out in his review, one might just as well ask, why can't Buffalo, New York take out a loan and become as rich uh, per capita as New York City? That's or right. why can't Portugal become as rich as Denmark? And, and the answer just, is clearly because people in Buffalo are genetically inferior to New Yorkers. I mean, we know that. Oh my God. Oh my God. Just, I can't can't even. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, th those, that's, a, that, that's a very good example. I mean, again, it, the, the examples don't refute necessarily the, 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 the idea because the idea is uh, not even based on empirical data. So we need the data first and then we can talk about it. But what the, these counterexamples do is to show that, you know, the logic that uh, Wade uses in lieu of data because he doesn't have empirical evidence, it's obviously flawed because you, you can use the same logic to come up with completely absurd conclusions uh, that, would, that you would have to accept because you'd be, you have arrived at it by using the same logic. But there's one more point before we sort of wrap it up that I wanted to make, mm -hmm. which is, again, something that has been actually made in a couple of reviews of the Wade book, and, and, and this is why this, this kind of stuff, it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, the issue here is that one cannot, we cannot actually say from a scientific perspective that Wade is completely and definitely wrong because a lot of the information needed to test these claims, it's actually not there. Okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, as we said for the last 40 minutes, there is actually very good evidence to, you know, that, that would make you skeptical of the claims. But you, it's not like you can say, no, I, we categorically know that that's not the case. But then the issue becomes, okay, we're talking about something that is obviously very socially and politically uh, uh, treacherous territory. You know, it's, it's, it's something that, affects, that really affects the lives of people. We're not talking about speculation on the nature of dark matter. Okay? Mm -hmm. We're talking about stuff that actually has political implications and social implications, which is why, of course, uh, uh, you know, certain kinds of press in a certain si on a certain side of the political spectrum is being cheering. Uh, Wade's book and, and sent certain other press on a different side of the political spectrum, I, I'll let you guess which one, uh, as being you know, vitriolic about it. So these things have consequences. Now, if, if, things, uh, if claims like these have social and political consequences, I would think that as a matter of moral obligation, of ethical obligation, you better come up with very strong empirical evidence before you make these claims. And not just saying, well, that's a, it's a possibility. I'm just going to put it out there, even though I admit that it's entire speculation. I mean, there is, there is a, a, a code of ethics that I think both scientists and journalists uh, would have to follow. That if you put something out there and you know that it's going to be controversial because it has practical consequences then you should be even more careful about speculating about it. You should be even more careful about presenting evidence instead of just coming up with just those stories. And that, I think, is the major problem with books like Wade. And he's not the only one. I mean, we're picking on him just because he's the last, latest example of this journal, but there's many, many, many others. Well said. All right, well, that brings us to time. Yes. Uh, you want to wrap up and move on to the picks? Welcome back. 
Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. My pick, Massimo, is a book uh, that I've uh, loved for a long time, so much so that I, I couldn't actually remember if I'd... I felt like I must have recommended it before, but I don't think I did. So, uh, no time like the present. Um, it's a famous book in philosophy. Um, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's by a philosopher named Derek Parfit, and it's called Reasons and Persons. Um, yes, it's a famous but, one. Yep. Yeah, the book is actually in four parts, um, and and I'm specifically only recommending parts three and four, not parts one and two. So if you start parts one and two and you find them like dense and dry, don't come crying to me because I recommend parts <laughs> three and four. Um, parts Fair three enough. and four are full of uh, some really interesting uh, philosophical thought experiments and arguments about revolving mainly around the concept of personal identity, around like what makes you you as opposed to a different person. Um, and uh, around the concept of, of ethics um, and utilitarianism and, you know, uh, like how and, and, and whether to care about, for example, future generations um, or, you know, what's uh, like, basically just he, he, he sets up a bunch of thought experiments showing contradictions in what I thought I believed about my preferences, about what would be a better state of the world than, you know, why one wow. state of the world would be better than another. Um, and it's, it's like one of my favorite kinds of philosophy, the kind of philosophy that shows you contradictions in what you think you want or what you think you believe. Very nice. Well, my pick is an article um, that actually touches on something very uh, close to what we, what we do. And um, the article, the title is what's, um, what's the Evidence on Using Rational Argument to Change People's Minds? by Tom Stafford. Oh, yes. And attributed, uh, it came out on a, on a website called contributoria.com. And um, so Stafford makes an, a series of interesting pro, uh, points that, um, that have, have occurred to me over the last several months reading the, these literature about, you know, cognitive biases and the fact that it's difficult to make people, you know, to change people's minds on basis of rational arguments and so on and so forth. He doesn't reject that literature. Um, uh, he says, you know, th all this is true and it's, it's interesting to find out and all that sort of stuff. But we also forget that there actually is a literature um, about how people do change their minds, how people do think rationally about uh, certain things and how they can, they can actually be trained uh, to better think, to, to think uh, rationally in a, in a, in a more uh, consistent uh, way. And so it's sort of, it's a call, it's a very, very nicely reasoned um, and with references and all that uh, call for, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, basically. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that we found out that there's all these limits to human cognition and, and, and rationality, but that doesn't mean uh, that we should therefore give up uh, the idea of persuading people by by reason, because actually we have evidence to to to, to think that that actually works. It's just a question of you have to know how it works and and in which cases it uh, it doesn't. Especially, you know, what what are the things that don't yeah. work? I like that article a lot those. too. That popped yeah. up a bunch of times in my Facebook feed. Yes, that's right. Cool. Well, uh, it's been an excellent discussion. Uh, Thank you. As we usual, all out of time. So uh, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. 
This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.